Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville Telephone Company, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, offering bundled packages, high-speed internet, and wireless phones. Smithville Telephone, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with my co-host today, Stan Jastrzewski, who's the news director at WFIU. And we're going to talk about the issues of uh, homelessness and some of the impacts that the downturn in the economy has on people who are, are involved with uh, homelessness. If you have uh, questions for us today, we have, we have two guests. I should mention that first before I give you the phone numbers, um, because this is going to make you want to call. Dan Combs is here. Dan is the township trustee of Perry Township, and uh, he's been – he's a very vocal spokesperson for people uh, in poverty and also a lot of people that get services from the trustees. And also William Ralph is here. He is a uh, – now a Bloomington business owner who has escaped uh, homelessness uh, through time, and he has quite an interesting story to tell. So if you want to talk to these two gentlemen and to Stan and I, you can call us at 855 or 877-285-9348, or you can join us on our new website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. So, Stan, welcome. Thanks. Thanks. for Good to be back. It's always good to have Stan here. We have a professional on the show instead of just uh, <laughs> me as a volunteer and Mary Catherine as a volunteer. So, Dan, welcome. Uh, thank you. Thanks, thanks for, for having me. Thanks for being here. And, and William, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Sure. So, so Dan, you've been involved with uh, issues of uh, homelessness and poverty, you know, as in your role as township trustee, and, and I know you've been very interested in it over time. So, I just want to sort of throw out a general question to you and ask you about, um, you know, what is the impact the economy is having on these issues today, from where you sit. <sighs> First thing, it's it's really hard to get a grip on the number of people who are homeless in any time um, because probably 90 percent of them never hit the shelters, never hit the street. You have people that are doubled up. You have um, people couch surfing, people who have some resource that keeps them out of the street. So what ripples down then if 90 percent of the people – never really are visible that have no homes, you only see a slight increase in the number of people out on the streets. What we're seeing at the township is not necessarily increasing the number of people without homes, but a true increase in the number of people who are in very dire financial straits because of these ripple effects. Um, when I started as trustees 20-odd years ago, a request for rent and utilities to get someone through a month would be $300. If you saw a $500 request, that was really something. Um, standard now is someone comes in our door, the average is around $1,000 just to stabilize them for a month. Um, it's not unusual to see someone with a $2,000 living expense. Um, and it's not infrequent. You see someone with a three thousand dollar living expense. They've over mortgaged or something, and you know they've you know divorces things of that nature. So what we're seeing is we don't see an actual increase so much in number of people's on the street as people who are going to be on the street, or they're going to be in this doubled up category, and that really is substantial in the last year and a half. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, William, I want to turn to you because I, I've just. I've known Dan for years, but I just met you today, and I think you've got kind of an interesting story to tell. If you could sort of give a little bit of your history, your background. Yeah, I was uh, asked to come on the show and talk about being homeless, and uh, the first thing that came to mind was uh, the, being down at the Shalom Center and seeing some of the people that have been homeless for for years on end. And, uh, during my short period of being homeless, I got to know some of these guys, and I thought how uh, 
how difficult it was for them to overcome being homeless and and not having the resources that that I've had and uh, I'm kind of an exception to the to the rule of being homeless here in, in the Bloomington community um, my homeless situation was attributed to drug use um, I had a good business and uh, I lost everything my home my business my my family because of drug use and that's how I got ended up in a, in a homeless position that I was in for about mm-hmm. six to eight months mm-hmm. and I got to know some of the people that was out there homeless and I see them today and think that it's pretty much hopeless that they have it seems to me like it would be easy to give them the resources and uh, life skills training to get them on their feet and and uh, become uh, able to take care of themselves and get a job and and do what I did to overcome being homeless. Um, I was fortunate. I just got out of prison 90 days ago, and I went into the shelter and uh, got a job uh, working construction, which is what I've been doing all my life. And I had contacts in the construction trade, so. It was pretty easy for me to find work, even in these difficult times that we're having. But uh, um, I'm fortunate to uh, to have the contacts and, and the skills and abilities to overcome the homeless situation. And uh, it's un- unfortunate that some of these individuals don't have the sense of meaning and purpose and drive and vision in life to, and skills and pretty much destitute to stay there. Mm-hmm. I think one of the interesting things about having you on the, the program, and there are a lot of things, but one is that you have uh, a good education. I mean you have – as you said, you have a lot of contacts. You have skills. You have training and you just took a wrong path and wound up losing everything. Yeah, I got uh, a bachelor's degree at DePaul University in Greencastle and uh, while I was going to school over there, I don't know how many people are familiar with Greencastle's uh, – DePaul University, but it's, uh, it's kind of a social club for the elite. Uh, I was very fortunate to go there. We and, have a lot of listeners in Greencastle. So. Uh, and, you, and you have another alum in the room right <laughs> here. So. Yeah, good. How, how you doing? <laughs> Not too bad. Uh, so when I fell from grace and, and went all the way from what I thought was uh, having uh, opportunities that a lot of people didn't have, ended up in a homeless situation, I was very devastated and motivated to get out of it. Um, like I said, I, was, I guess I was just fortunate to have the contacts that I had to, to get work mm-hmm. today. But, it's, but the economy being what it is, it's not, not that easy to find work. Very difficult, mm-hmm. very difficult. Um, I started making contacts with some of my construction people that I knew before I went to prison. And I was surprised to see how many that usually had two or three years backed up work waiting for them were now five and six months with nothing and mm-hmm. working, teaming up with some relatives. Mm-hmm. Basically, not hardly anything going on at all. Right. All right. Our phone numbers eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. And you can join our discussion today, WFIU.org slash noon edition. We're talking about homelessness. Uh, with William Ralph, who has escaped homelessness and is now – he is a Bloomington business owner. He owns a roofing company and he's also trying to find other construction work. And uh, Dan Combs is here. Dan is the Perry Township trustee and has worked for many, many years with uh, on issues involving homelessness and poverty. William, you talked about uh, in the shelter the, the need for programs and services to – help restore at least hope to some of these people and hopefully restore skills that they can apply in the outside world. What kinds of things do you think are missing? What would be helpful to the people who are in the shelters to to learn, to experience? That's a real good question. Um, When uh, when I was at the bottom of my drug use and and my, my dilemma, I had lost vision and um, the will and, and even the ability to to overcome. And my whole life was one-dimensional. And I see these other people with the same 
uh, sense of hopelessness and lack of vision. And I've asked, my, I've asked myself the same question, seeing some of these people in the shelter, knowing that they're going to stay there and just continue the cycle at that level of, of, of subsistence. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Dan, you've been involved in searching for answers, and there are some programs that, that work and some that maybe don't. Um, Mr. Ralph has my utmost respect. He had what typically is called a moment of lucidity and decided to alter his course. And at some time, most substance abusers will do that. I mean, I'm not an expert. I have experience with substance abusers. And one of the things that we've always tried to do um, because there's limited money, there's limited – actually, there's limited housing stock is try to um, work with those who have had that moment of lucidity. If someone is working with Centerstone Behavioral Health, we kind of wipe out their record leading up to that. We don't care what happened leading up to that as long as they're working with Centerstone from that point on to overcome that kind of thing. Um, I believe Martha's House is very aggressive in that also. They, their case management um, – and I don't want to speak too much for Martha's House because they just kind of contract with us to operate the shelter. But their case management is they try to do an assessment of what people need. One of the things that became real obvious um, and just very recently, um, we had people on a 90-day cycle. That had been long enough for a long time. Um, it was arrived at um, prior to Martha's House was Shelter Incorporated. Programming would be 90 days. If it was more than 90 days, it wasn't emergency shelter. It was really inpatient treatment. Um, but in this economy and so many people showing up that had those issues, now that's 120 day with extensions. Um, whether there are economic issues, whether there are social skills, whether there are addictions, problems they're in treatment for, 90 days wouldn't do it. So we've kind of shifted gears there. But there's still that expectation, both when you come to the township office um, for assistance or if you're in the shelter for assistance, that you will at least take responsibility for what you can. One of the things uh, – the best way to – what's responsibility? Someone who's disabled gets $541 a month. Well, we can't ask them to go work. All we can ask is, well, just try to be responsible with the $541, and then we don't have a problem coming in. Now, that does not mean they can't have cable TV, but it means you can't buy the high-end stations. Um, it doesn't mean you can't have a cell phone. It just means you get the cheapest cell phone plan you can. Uh, and most social service agencies in Bloomington, up in Monroe County, appear to operate on that idea that we know there's only X amount of money. When people want to fix themselves, they can be fixed. And uh, But if people aren't participating, uh, then it becomes this thing, well, we're doing this this month. We're doing it again next month. We're doing it in the, the month after that. Um, some people call that judgmental. But when you have limited resources, you actually have to wait for people to have that moment of lucidity, whether it's addictions, whether it's behavioral health, whether it's just they need to go get a GED because they screwed around forever. And well, let's talk about those resources for a second. Maybe it's helpful to explain where the financial resources come from in the first place and, and why they are limited. Um, okay. Township resources are based on property taxes. So you know they're frozen. We know how much money we're going to get and we have to figure out how to parcel it out. Um, not-for-profit funding, my Community Kitchen, um, Martha's House, Shalom Center, comes from donations or grants. Donations, you're out there on your own presenting your image saying, give us money. The grants is as cruel as trying to help people based on limited amount of money because there's a limited amount of grants. And so you not only have people in poverty competing for resources – now the agencies are competing with resources. The city just gave their block grant funds out. Um, they could only help five different agencies. And so there were 15, 20 agencies. Ultimately, they either didn't apply or got cut out in that process. So 
federal – the city gives grants. Our best partner, we try to partner with agencies and nurture them, Martha's House, Community Kitchen, um, Mother Hubbard's Cupboard and partner with these not-for-profits so they can build because they actually have more access and are able to do more things than we do. The city has been our best partner with that. Uh, they use CDBG, but they also dip into the general fund, the Jack Hopkins Fund. Um, local government, that's about it. The, um, the Monroe County commissioners, when they had their social service fund, they would target a program like Volunteers in Medicine um, and say, we guarantee you we're going to give you this much money every year. Uh, the county council recently um, assumed control over the social service fund and they have gone to that competitive model. Does it, does it strike you that this competitive model is somehow counterintuitive because I mean, you, you have so many different agencies that need a much bigger pot of money and, and now you're asking these people to effectively compete to see who can serve people who need service maybe the most of any group of people that needs service, period. Our, and I, I, again, we've, we've been successful at Perry Township just because unique circumstances. I mean I, I'm not going to say it's something I've done. Or the board's done. It's just you know, there's been these agencies that have appeared that we thought this would be. Let's invest for the next three years in this agency. Let's give them space. Let's give them funding, and then they grow and they take off on their own. That kind of makes sense to me. You know, it's just like you know, when a person has a lucid moment, then you invest because eventually they're weaned off of that. Um, this idea that each agency has to go to ten different funding streams. And they each get a little bit. Well, next – it's like crack cocaine. Well, next year they're going to go back because they know they can get a little bit there. Um, I call it the Lyndon Johnson approach. Lyndon Johnson was famous for giving everybody a little bit of something because he knew they would vote for him hoping next year they would get a little bit more. What I, I, I really think needs to be done is this shift in focus that you take an agency – you nurture it and then when it's standing on its own through private foundation grants, through donations and through state and federal grants, then you move on and build the next agency up. Um, and unfortunately, I'm kind of in a minority on that. Well, I think, I think it's uh, – you know, like you said, there are people who have invested their time and energy in a particular agency and if they, if they need some money and they get zeroed out, you know, their agency might go away. The, Oh, it's a real threat. It's a real threat. Um, again, um, when those CDBG awards came down. And that's the community development block grants. Block grants. Those are passed. Federal the federal government. government gives money and the city administers them. But when those block grants came down, everyone that got money was deserving and probably everybody that didn't get money was deserving. I mean, it's, it's, I, we deal with individuals at our office and sometimes we have to make that is this – an individual where the investment is going to pay off and I can't imagine doing that with agencies. I just – that's too big for me to wrap my head around mm-hmm. is how do you decide which agency is going to be on the bubble? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the way it's been done since time and more in, since the beginning of time. <laughs> <laughs> Our phone number is 855-0811 or outside of Bloomington, uh, Greencastle and elsewhere, 877-285-9348. And you can join us on our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. Uh, William, I wanted to ask you, uh, you were homeless uh, essentially for how long? About six months. Six months. And where did you find the services that you needed, the food, the shelter? Um. Fortunately, I think Bloomington is a mecca of handouts and uh, it's a good point about bringing it up when uh, Mr. Coombs was talking about moment of lucidity. I call it a moment of clarity but uh, what it did for me is it gave me a sense of meaning and purpose in life and what I attribute my moment of lucidity to was uh, uh, my three daughters and uh, I just – kind of like an innate sense of value of who I was and living in the uh, – using drugs for so long. I, I used for about eight or nine years pretty straight. Uh, accumulated uh, uh, quite a bit of uh, what I call wreckage and um, I wanted to go ahead and speak about this mm-hmm. moment of lucidity sure. because it's it's a – ties into the, the question that you ask about what can be done 
to uh, get people started back on on a, a different life and getting away from being homeless. Um, my moment of lucidity or moment of clarity was a monumental point in life, and what I bred somewhere along the line was the greatest human need is a sense of meaning and purpose in life. And I see a lot of homeless people who have no sense of meaning and purpose in life other than doing the same thing I did, just one-dimensional life. Get the next meal or I had to get another rock of cocaine or whatever I was after. And uh, the handouts, the where I went, said, asked your question, where mm-hmm. I went to get uh, subsistence was at Shalom Center and everywhere they could hand it out. Mm-hmm. And what this did, and I'm only speaking for myself here. Now, what this did for me is it had a sense of it enabling my drug, my drug use because I could use all the money and the liquid assets that I had available for my drug habit, and I could meet my needs through these handouts. And again, I'm just speaking for myself. This, when I look back on it, was an enabling, had an enabling effect. And I really sympathize with Mr. Coombs' ability to run the, the trustee office down there and have the methodology to screen through the people that need it and the people that are kind of abusing the system. And I'm, you know, I've seen people out there uh, that are homeless that really could do better but are uh, taking advantage of the handouts and kind of abusing the system and, and staying in that uh, uh, lifestyle because we have uh, uh, quite a bit. You can eat a meal and and, and get food and, and even money from some of the churches and uh, quite a bit of handouts here if, uh, you know, you touch all the bases. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, so a lot of generous people here, but uh, what you're saying is that in your case, it probably may have kept you on the street even longer. Kept my drug habit going. Yeah, it did. It enabled me. If, if, if I might, and I did not – today's the first day I've ever met Mr. Ralph. I, you know, I, I, I feel good that somebody's saying something that for 20 years plus that I've kind of thought. Um, part of the trauma, I guess, of, that my caseworkers have is they get three days with a client and we set up a case management plan and we say, this is how you at least stabilize your rate of descent. We used to think we save people. If there's not enough money to save people, well, we want to stabilize them. Well, there's not enough money to stabilize them. So what we hope we do is stabilize their rate of descent. And my caseworkers never know whether they're successful or not. They, they never know whether they're making the right calls. Um, and so this is kind of refreshing to hear. Um, it's sad to hear, but it's re- re- refreshing to hear. And Mr. Ralph, the situation he was in, the – the the individuals who are homeless that he's talking about are not all the homeless though you know and that's where we wrestle we we struggle throughout the social service community how many homeless are there the visible homeless and I take classes at IU and I walk down Kirkwood and the panhandlers hit me and I actually know a lot of them professionally and they're actually not homeless but a lot of them are and those aren't the 90 percent that are couch surfing. Those – you know, we tend to think these are the people that we have to serve. But we still have to remember there's this huge block out there that aren't substance abusers. They may be lacking a GED. They may be economically dysfunctional. They may have um, behavioral issues. And so it's – you know, you're trying to – the visible ones are the ones that draw attention. Um, you know, there's one woman, she's called Pushcart Dorothy. That's how everyone knows her. Mm-hmm. Um, we've tried intervention several times through behavioral health, when her behavioral health, and found out lots of things that I can't talk about. But actually, Pushcart Dorothy is very valuable in that she's very visible, but she's not aggressive. You, when you see her, she's by herself. And she's almost a poster child of raising community awareness because people see her and they go, why is this happening? And that's a positive. When you see people who are bagging, standing out at the intersections or whatever, that's not a positive. You know, I mean, again, 
going into my professional status, I know a lot of them. And they actually damage what we do because people are – they push them away. They reject them. It's um, – our biggest clients for emergency assistance in Bloomington, in Perry Township, which is south of 3rd Street, I've had a higher number cruncher. We did a two-year study. Our biggest recipients of emergency relief are in the Browns Woods apartments. The affordable housing. You think we're going to be dealing? We deal with people from the Section Eight projects, from the HUD projects. It's nothing like the crisis those people in affordable housing face. The the affordable housing means you can afford it when you get into it, and if everything continues going right for you, you're doing okay. But the minute you get laid off. Lots of places don't give you sick days. You get sick, you get injured. All of a sudden, these people are looking at not just $1,000, but if they don't come up with $1,000, their credit is ruined, whatever it is, which immediately removes a resource that I'm sure Mr. Ralph is aware of. We don't know how much we rely on these things. So it's you know homeless. I'm actually looking more and more people in crisis. We've gentrified. Um, Mr. Zalzberg, I think you remember the mobile home court that used to be mm-hmm. Vermilion. Um, it went away. Well, it was horrid housing, but it was really affordable for low-income people. So you got to make this decision. What do you want? Um, deer Park, uh, and I don't want to trivialize it, but we, we're, we're overrun with deer in parts of our city because we built the city out into the deer's habitat. We built our city out into the really low-income people's habitat, but we didn't get rid of the people either. So now they're trying to exist in an environment that's incredibly expensive. I teach so many kids drop out of school in Monroe County, around 20 percent. Well, that means that if effectively one out of every five kids today is going to be unemployable in any real sense of the world. Um, so. Oh, it's not. It's homeless, but it's not just those people that you see on the street. It's this big issue. Yeah. Well, we've had uh, our time to take a break. I think we've done. Uh, we've certainly done an excellent job of depressing me. I know. <laughs> there are a lot of issues we need to. to maybe the maybe the solutions will come in the second half. We'll give that a shot. You're listening to Noon Edition. We're talking about the homelessness and poverty today. Uh, please join us at eight five five zero eight one one or eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, as well as movie, play, and opera reviews. Find out more by going to our website, WFIU.org. On Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting south-central Indiana. Listen at 8.33 a.m. and 5.45 p.m. every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to catch that day's feature. If you miss one, that's okay. They're archived on our website, WFIU.org, and the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 745. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times, along with Stan Jastrzewski, the news director at WFIU, and we have two guests today. Perry Township trustee Dan Combs is here, and William Ralph is here. He has escaped homelessness and now is a Bloomington business owner. You can join us uh, at uh, 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. And you can also join us on our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. We were talking about affordable housing before the break, uh, Trustee Combs. And I, I, you know, I, it occurs to me that that's I wonder if you think if that's sort of a, a euphemism. I, I think that a lot of the a lot of these problems are dealt with in sort of this euphemistic manner, where we try to give names to problems that don't adequately encompass the scope of the problem or the the number of people that the problem uh, uh, 
takes in. I, I wonder if there's a more frank language you think from having dealt with uh, a, a number of these problems that that could be applied that would uh, make people realize just what a big problem some of these things are. Oh, wow. I've been going through this stimulus package trying to find low-income housing, which is a far different concept than affordable housing. And, you know, low income, it's, you know, poor. Okay, we have to admit, you know, know, Bloomington's poverty rate, the number is maybe skewed by you, but there's still a tremendous number of poor people in this county. And we, there's, you know, we just raised our rent benefit in Perry Township um, for a single to $525 a month, which was unheard of. And around the state, it's one of the highest. But there is nowhere you can go if you're put out on the street tonight to get another place for less than $525 a month. You have to rent it by the week. Um, and we changed our other benefits there. We, it's, we're dealing with poor. We're dealing with poverty. And we come, you're right, we come up with euphemisms. When the affordable housing complexes went in, I was contacted by all sides about the difference. Why weren't we supporting affordable housing? And our prediction was affordable housing was actually going to result in more poverty in Monroe County because people come here for the affordable housing. Then they fall out of formation for no, through no fault of their own. Um, and low-income housing is what we don't have. Let's, you know, we need to be very frank. Not everybody is going to aspire to a three-bedroom house somewhere. But everybody should have some kind of housing. And low-income people, well, okay, we know we're going to have low-income people. Then it stands to reason we need low-income housing. Um, And I'm just not seeing that in the stimulus package. Um, But we do have affordable housing for people who have mortgages. um, But we're not looking at people who haven't hit that trigger level yet. Or people who've hit that trigger level and fallen out of that um, movement. So uh, we have all sorts of euphemisms. I once had a guest editorial written about me um, because I called people homeless and I was told that really I was supposed to call them people who were temporarily experiencing homelessness. And I thought, if that's what it takes, but really we're talking about people who have no roof over their head, whatever you want to call them. Um, in whatever circumstances. We were talking also about the difficulty in in tracking the number of homeless people. And I'm curious what both of you think about this. Um, First, just based on your experiences, I'm curious if either one of you want to hazard a guess as to how many homeless people we have in Bloomington. And second, is there a more effective means by which we can track the homeless population? We've got a census coming up next year. Is there something the government could do? What do, what do both of you think? I'll, Mr. Ralph, I'll start with you. It, that, I think a good barometer on that is uh, uh, looking at the size of the line of uh, food at the soup kitchen. When uh, Before I went to prison four years ago, there usually at the noon meal there was uh, – you didn't have to stand in line very long. And I was kind of surprised to see the line had probably doubled in size from then until now. Now, how many people are we talking about doubling in size? Um, I really wouldn't know. I would venture to say it's well over 150 to 200 people fed every noon down there at, uh, wow. at Shalom Center. I'm just guessing, but mm. it was it's much larger than it was before. And as far as a census, yeah, uh, I'm not – familiar with the Census Bureau, but trying to find out an accurate number of homeless people is they're the, hard to get a read on. I mean, yeah, I think part of that is what, uh, what Dan has said in terms of people who are staying with a relative, staying with a friend. They're someplace for a week and then they move on to someplace else and um, they're not, the, not what the stereotype of somebody who's homeless might be, which is some – which is Push cart Dorothy, is that what you call her? Yeah. yeah. The, uh, and the definition of homeless, an individual who's homeless, varies from community to community, agency to agency at time. Uh, we adopted the Salvation Army definition years ago, which is a person who is living under – a person who does not have a roof over their head that they're responsible for. And 
when you look at it that way, um, in 1988, Community Action Program did a census and projected 3,000 people a year would be homeless in Monroe County. That was in 88. And people said, well, there aren't 3,000 people homeless or we'd see them under the bushes and stuff. Well, that's 10 people a night that may not be the same 10 people over and over again. Now, how many people experience homelessness? Uh, uh, we have uh, we we actually coordinated the 2003 census homeless count in Bloomington, and we could go count the street people. We could count them. We never came up with a way to count the doubles up. We went to the federal government, and they said use a multiplier. And well, that sounded good. And we said, what's a multiplier? And they said, well, just pick a number and multiply the number of people you count. Seriously, and. It was like, so in other words, the government doesn't have a good way to do this either. No. On the census form, Nothing what would bad. help would be on the census form is a question – and I this is spontaneous – but you know, how many different living units are in this residence? How, ma- you know, how many adults of different households? You know, some way of defining – so you can get a grip on the number of people that are doubled up on uh, – is it April 15th? March – April 15th tax day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, uh, where they are, it could be done in the census. But, you know, then you have to spend two or three years arguing on who you're going to count, how you're going to count them. But there's – anybody that tells you they have any idea in Bloomington, Monroe County, um, I've never seen a number that I actually believe because – some are high, some are low, but they're all based on a multiplier. All right. Our phone numbers again, 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. And you can uh, join us on our website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. I wanted to acknowledge uh, both of you are very articulate spokespeople for your points of view. But Dan, you've been involved in a, a few, um, let's say, discussions over – of the right way to provide services for or, – or the, the manner to provide services for people who are homeless. And there are – there are varying points of view in our community. There are – it's a – it's far broader sense of opinion. And what's odd is at the far right of the spectrum are the people who say you shouldn't do anything at all for anybody. And then as you move into the lefter part, it's – we start attacking each other over how we're doing it. And th- this just lets the people who want to do nothing – off the hook completely. Um, there are uh, what we, and maybe it's the, uh, maybe it's a alleged work ethic I thought escaped me, but um, we want to see an end result. When we invest our time and our money, we want to see an end result. We want to see some kind of outcome better than what we started with. We can never measure how up the food chain that's going to be. And there are other ways of addressing it where you just try to maintain the status quo, not make it worse. And it's two totally different approaches. Both of them have their merits um, and they're both based probably on more on personal, emotional ideology as opposed to Uh, some kind of statistical base, empirical data, because, you know, how do you measure, if you have an unknown, what's the population, how do you measure your success? You know, and, you know, luckily no one has frozen to death in Bloomington. There was a census, our census in 2003, there were 32 people on the street that night in October. Um, 28 of them were intoxicated. And they were asked, what are you going to do this winter? And most of them said, oh, you know, we'll have somewhere to go. Um, then two years ago, there was a count. The HT actually sent people out on that count. We were a part of it. But I believe they found two people on the street because that was in January. Now, what's that mean? We don't know what that means. We just know that that night there were only two people on the street. Does that mean they really had somewhere to go or they just didn't find them? And if we went out tonight we'll come up with a different number of the people on the street. Again, I, do we want to help the ones most likely that we can get out of the situation? It's that 10% solution. Is the first 90% of any job takes 90% of the effort, and the last 10% takes 90% of the effort too. And so 
I, I don't want to say we look at the biggest impact we can have, but we try to use a multiplier. We try to get as many people involved in their own circumstances as we can. All right, we have a phone call. Let's go to the phones and uh, Edwin. Edwin? Yeah, I'd just like to say that uh, what I heard the director of Martha's House say was that uh, 45% of the residents of Martha's House were recently incarcerated, meaning uh, released from prison or um, jail. And uh, a frequent mistake we make is confusing uh, the homeless population with the uh, previously incarcerated population. There's, a, there's an overlap there, and it's a considerable overlap, but they're really two different populations. Uh, the important thing about this is, is that where are we replacing the responsibility? Because a lot of times a guy ends up in a homeless shelter who's been re replaced, it could be a woman too, uh, who's been re released from uh, jail or prison and our criminal justice system typically just breaks a guy down to nothing because he's got probation fees, he's got urine screening fees, all kinds of things that he must pay, child support maybe. Uh, maybe he doesn't have the job skills, maybe he's still addicted. So he gets out, and uh, if he wants a roof over his head, the only place uh, for him is a homeless shelter, and it's just not necessary. If we had halfway houses, work release centers, like we needed, uh, we could get a lot of those uh, former offenders into a lifestyle where they could be productive citizens and we could free up that space uh, for those who are truly needy of uh, homeless facilities. Ed, Edwin, we have a, a former offender with us today. William, what do you think? Uh, yeah, Edwin brings up a very interesting point and uh, ties in with the, uh, with the census of uh, – who is actually homeless. And uh, I can personally relate to uh, my situation getting released from prison and uh, going into uh, the Martha's house as a homeless person. And I didn't relate to very many of those people in there. I, I had a mission. I knew exactly where I was going and how I was going to get it. And unlike many of the other people that were in Martha's house that were not released from prison but came from the streets and were um, quote unquote homeless, um, as opposed to uh, uh, being in a situation like I was in, being released from prison and looking for. Uh, when I walked out of prison, I had nothing. I didn't have a wallet, didn't have ID, not even a change of clothes, and I had to literally start from the beginning. And uh, point Edwin brings up about. Uh, differentiating between the two social classes of individuals being released from prison and the quote-unquote homeless person uh, being two different uh, – having two different sets of needs. Um, and uh, um, I think it would be a, a, a point or a, uh, something well worth going after, uh, getting a, a – something similar to Martha's house, but uh, to uh, take care of uh, uh, people that's being released either on work release or uh, uh, a uh, work, uh, work release status or uh, being released from jail on, just on parole like I'm on uh, and some of the other people getting out of jail to have a, a place to go to and, and get uh, employment assistance, because most of the people that go to jail have uh, whatever problem they came to jail with. In my case, it was drug use, and some people uh, have um, uh, employment. Uh, they, can't, they can't get a job. They can't fill out a uh, – uh, uh, do a uh, – interview, job interview, or do a resume or, or fill out their uh, – to seek employment. They don't know the, the – something very simple that's, that's uh, handicapped them and got them in the justice system and sent them to jail, and then they come out with that same problem they went in with, uh, and then it's complicated by the uh, 
what the system does to people when they walk out. And for me, uh, having a college education and being 60 years old and having some experience with life, still find it tremendously difficult adjusting when I get out of when I got out of prison to uh, after four years and, and getting back in society. And there's a different set of needs that I had that the homeless people have. And throwing them into the same combine of Martha's house, it's, it's really not the, the best situation. Did you spend your, your first night at Martha's house? Yes, I did. Okay. The, uh, this is kind of where I go off on a rant. Um, I actually worked at the prison that um, Mr. Ralph was incarcerated in. Um, they recruited me. And I went over in the mid-90s and spent my days there in the evening coming back here and doing trustee stuff. But I taught what was called a transition program, which was life skills. We had one of the award-winning reentry programs in the 1980s in the entire nation. Indiana had halfway houses. We had three-quarter-way houses. We had work release all at the state level. And a guy named Matheny got out on a furlough and killed his wife brutally. Instantly, the governor said, nobody's ever going to pull a Willie Horton on me, and he closed every exit program we had. And instead, they recruited me, and I went over and for these guys that had been down for 15 to 30 years, in one week, I was supposed to tell them how to survive when they got out of prison. It was a real eye-opener. Um, I, I spoke with Reverend Bill Breeden dozens of times about we need something other than Martha's House for ex-offenders. Uh, we absolutely It's either that or we're going to be paying $35,000 a year to house them somewhere else. Um, I can't I, – I, I, I want to be kind of restrained about that. One of the reasons uh, – and Mr. Ralph makes a very good point. The caller makes a very good point. Since we don't have an easy release system in Indiana – and I don't mean easy for society. I mean making it easier – um, you're in shackles until the day you're released. You're in shackles because you are judged a danger to society and yourself, and they take you to the bus station in Terre Haute and take the shackles off and say you're no longer a threat just that quick. So we need – that is the facility. We need not just in Bloomington, but we need it in Indiana. We need something in the in-between there. Uh, the other thing is, is, and we get grief for this, and I think, Bob, you'll recognize uh, we have a residency requirement that we put in our contract with Shelter Incorporated, and we also put it in our township assistance guidelines um, without being real specific. When Shelter Incorporated went bankrupt, the previous contractor we had, and we had to physically take over the shelter, there were many individuals in there who were not from this community whose communities had refused placement that Indiana Department of Corrections had driven here, including two pedophiles, not sex offenders, two pedophiles that are still red flagged that had never been to Bloomington until the day they brought them down here. Why did they do that? Because there was nowhere else in the state that they could go. They were a danger to society right up until the minute they were released. What that was was just one horrible accident waiting to happen. So why are there residency requirements? Because Indiana Department of Corrections will use every facility they can to take the responsibility off of them. It's not the parole officers. I mean, we're talking state policies since I believe Matheny may have been in 1992, actually. It was Governor By. It was Governor By. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> and, uh, but it's it, just a fact. It, it, it was, Indiana was a, a model program up until then. And now there is a difference. All people who are experiencing crisis, whether it's homelessness or threat of homelessness, everyone is different. You know, what Martha's House tries to do is their case management is kind of individualized, but you still get a cookie-cutter approach. Um, and that cookie-cutter approach is due to lack of funding. And it's not going to work for everybody. And you might end up putting some very dangerous people in with some people who have no ability to defend themselves at all. And that's not a good situation, but that's the money. Mr. Ruff, I wanted to ask you quickly. You talked about gaining your, your moment of clarity thinking about your daughters and, and what you meant to them. Can you – Tell us briefly what your relationship is with your daughters and, and what do you, you hope it will be over the long term? 
Oh, yeah. I have uh, three beautiful daughters, Hannah, uh, Vesta, and uh, Emmy. They're 11, 13, and 14 years old. Um, I have plans to take custody of Hannah in, in the near future, and that's uh, that's about as good as it gets, getting my kid back. I love them dearly, and I want to be there for them in every way I can. And I haven't had very many, very much parenting uh, experience, and I, I'm kind of lost here, but uh, I'm going to do the best I can. And uh, I ask because I think it's important to point out that, that this is an issue that affects not just the people that are, that become homeless, but the the many many people around them as well. Right. Um, they play a big role in, in, in getting me where I'm at today and getting my own roofing business started. And uh, I'd like to mention for the viewing audience, if you want to get a hold of me, it's Three nine one six two three zero or roofer-ralph at yahoo.com. I'll be glad to roof your house for you. Um, yeah, I got uh, my daughters played a big role in it, and uh, my ex is uh, and I, the mother of my babies, have uh, a, a very positive relationship and working towards getting in being a parent to my children as much as possible. All right. We have less than a minute to go. Dan, if anybody wants to reach you to talk further about this, how uh, can they get a hold of you? Perry Township Trustee's Office, 336-3713. We're at 1010 South Walnut. Um, there's all, well, our, we're open to the public. Doors open 9 to 3. There's people there 8 to 4, but you kind of got to quit dealing with the public and do paperwork sometimes. Um, uh, the uh, email is not a good way to do it because when we start discussing these issues, we get into confidential ish, confidentiality issues, public records, and so. Um, okay. You know, just give us a call. We're in the phone book, or stop and see us. All right. Thanks a lot. I want to thank our guests today, Dan Combs and William Ralph, for Stan Jastrzewski, uh producer Ari- Ariana Prothero, and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home, office, and garage using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. Smithville Telephone Company, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922. Offering bundled packages, high-speed internet, and wireless phones. Smithville Telephone, local pride, global technology, information at smithville.net.